Wow, it is so great to be with you all this morning. There is so much energy here today. You must all be either highly motivated or overly caffeinated. I don't know which. What matters is that we're here to celebrate some good news. And boy, does our world need good news. Every day we are just pummeled with all the bad news, all the ways the world has gone wrong from gas bombs to terrorist attacks, racial mistrust, relationships in crisis, addiction, disease, Bad news just seems to be universal. But Easter tells us that the bad news isn't the whole story. The bad news doesn't give us the full picture. God is at work. God is on the move. God brings good news through Jesus Christ. Born in a manger, died on a cross, raised to life, ascended in glory, and coming again. A good news that spiked almost 2,000 years ago, but it is still in motion today. And you and I are invited to join in God's good news, God's gospel. You and I are privileged to participate in what God did and in what God is still doing. We're told in the gospel of Luke chapter 24 that on that first Easter, some of the disciples were running away from Jerusalem because of the danger. They were on the road to the town of Emmaus and Jesus met them there. And when they realized who he was, they immediately turned around and ran back toward the danger in order to spread the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the disciples said to each other, the Lord has risen indeed. The original word is much more emphatic than that. We should really put it this way. It's really, really true. The Lord has risen. And I'd like us to continue that ancient Easter greeting. I'll say Christ is risen And you respond with, he is risen indeed. And we'll do that three times. And you can yell as loud as you want. Are you ready? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Good job. The good news is that God loved us enough not to send us another politician. We've got way too many of them already. God loved us enough not to send us an economist because our problems are not primarily money problems. God loved us enough not to send us a whiz kid computer genius because our problems will not be solved by technology. He loved us enough to send us what we really need, a savior. Because our world's problems go far deeper than the gap between rich and poor or the competition for resources or even just the daily struggle just to keep it all together. There is a fracture at the core of our being, something that is broken that can only be mended by the grace of God, offered to us through the death and resurrection of Christ, where he took the punishment our sin deserves so that we might be reunited with God, the God who created us. And his resurrection power proves Jesus has all that we need to restore, to heal our souls, so that we can realign our lives according to God's way. So that we become God's children, dearly loved and freed from the slavery of sin. So that as changed people, we become God's agents of change, of compassion. We become God's ambassadors of justice and love. So it starts with, each one of us restored in our own personal relationship with God. And you know, when we see our hearts changed by God, that's no small miracle. Because our world is so broken, people get bruised and battered in the process, and then they become skeptical about God and God's love. They resist the idea that God really exists or loves them. 
or wants to be intimately involved in their lives. They're, they're afraid to give up control to this unseen being. They may even become bitter or are hostile towards the idea of God. There was a story told of a tourist in Italy who came upon an unusual grave in a cemetery of a small rural village. It was for a man who had died over a century ago, but who has been well known for being an ardent atheist and was completely against Christianity. But he was also a little afraid of it. So he arranged that when he died that a huge slab of stone would be placed over his grave so that in case there is a resurrection from the dead, that he would not be raised from the dead. I'm not sure a, a slab of granite is really going to do, do you any good in that situation, but that's what he believed. He even had these words carved into the granite. I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. But when he was buried, there must have been an acorn in the ground. So that a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and had split that stone slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. You know, if an acorn can split a slab of granite, don't discount the power of Christ's resurrection to split open the heart of even the most hardened person. So that's stage one. That's how faith begins when we're able to say, I have begun following Jesus and I am depending on the spirit of Jesus for my journey. But it doesn't stop there. In stage two, the Christian life, we're able to say it this way. I am being sent by Jesus to bless others and to invite them to follow him. And that's what we're going to focus on for a few minutes this morning, the sending. That's what we see happening in Jesus' resurrection encounters with the, his closest followers, his disciples. And I love the way the Gospel of John so succinctly describes their first encounter together after Jesus' resurrection. Chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's Sunday evening, just 12 hours or so after uh, when his grave had been discovered to be empty. It was a confusing and even terrifying day for the disciples. <clears throat> Remember, the first emotion of Easter was fear. Fear fueled by confusion. When you're in a situation where you don't know what's going on, fear is a normal response. They're in shock. The unthinkable has happened. Jesus taken, crucified right in front of them. They thought he was the deliverer of Israel. Looked like they had backed the wrong horse, bet everything and lost. And they're probably next on the crucifixion list. And so life had been flipped upside down. They were huddled together in that upper room like Titanic survivors in a lifeboat. And they're confused by the reports of these Jesus sightings from the women who went to the tomb early in the morning. Uh, from Peter and John who ran to the tomb and found the grave empty and the scarf that was over Jesus' face neatly folded nearby. Then from the men who came in breathless from running all the way back from the Emmaus Road. All these reports coming in and they had to wonder, wonder are we all going crazy because of our grief? Was this some bizarre mass hallucination? Well, Jesus doesn't let them go too long without proving to them 
his resurrection was not a hoax or a mirage or some kind of grief-induced delusion. Jesus just materializes in their room. He didn't knock and come through the door like a normal person. Poof, all of a sudden, Jesus is there like someone jumping out of a closet to scare you. And so they were freaked out just a little bit. Luke 24, verse 37, records the same moment and adds this comment. It says, they were startled and frightened as though they thought they were seeing a ghost. But then Jesus says in our passage, verse 9, peace be with you. In one sense, Jesus is just giving the traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom aleichem, peace be with you. It's like saying, what's up, how's it going? But he's really saying so much more than that. He's trying to address their fears by saying, peace be with you. Jesus was saying, hey, it's going to be okay. It's really me. And to drive home that point, he shows in verse 20, he shows them his hands and his side. His body was real. Remember the disciple Thomas? He's kind of gotten a bad rap for centuries being nicknamed Doubting Thomas. He's the only disciple who wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And later when they told him about it, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He just wanted what the other disciples got. The truth is they were all Doubting Thomases. They all needed this physical demonstration that what, we, that, that what, they, what they saw was not an illusion. And when their brains were finally able to process this input, it says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The Bible is so compact, so brief. It's easy to gloss over what's happening. You have to picture the championship game of the NCAA men's basketball tourney. The buzzer sounds and the winning team clears the bench. Fans pour out onto the court. It is mayhem. Picture the greatest joy possible, and that's what happened in that upper room, minus the cooler of Gatorade dumped over the coach. But then the words that changed history. Verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. You need to go. You need to make sure this message of my good news doesn't stay locked into this room. You've got to get it out to every corner of the globe. It's your job now to proclaim this peace with God, that it is possible because of what I have done. Proclaim my life, my death, my rising, my ascension. Proclaim my kingdom and my coming again. Do you know why the disciples were also called apostles? It's because of this verse. The Greek word for being sent is apostolos. The apostles were the sent ones. The Latin word for the same thing is missio. It's where we get the word mission or missionaries, sent ones, people on mission for Christ. Jesus used the same word when he prayed to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, verse 18. He prays to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This was Jesus' plan from the beginning. Just as God missioned me, I'm missioning you. As God apostled me, I'm apostling you. This isn't like the Blues Brothers who thought they were on a mission for God. This is the real thing. He appeared to the disciples to make it clear that their mission was not to keep it to themselves. They were sent to the world to model what Jesus said and did. To bring people into a relationship of peace with God. Jesus sent his inner core of disciples to the world for the purpose of making more disciples. 
And that's what they did. And the second generation of disciples were then sent to make even more disciples who would make more disciples who would make more disciples. And so down through the generations until all the nations get filled up with, with disciples. You know, if you believe in Jesus today, you are somewhere down this chain of discipleship. Hundreds and thousands of links taking it all the way back to the original disciples, the original sent ones, apostles, who were on a mission for God. You're here because they were obedient to being sent, and others that they touched picked up the torch and ran with it, handing it down from one generation to the next. And now it's your turn. It's your turn to carry the torch and pass it on. The mission hasn't changed. The Christian life has always come in two stages. Stage one, I have begun following Jesus and I'm depending on the spirit of Jesus for my journey. But stage two, I am being sent by Jesus to bless others and to invite them to follow him. I am being sent by Jesus to bless others and to invite them to follow him. There's no greater privilege in the world than to be on mission for Christ. We don't have peace with God just for ourselves. We have a mission from God. This God who offers peace then sends us on a mission. There are people God is calling you to reach by investing yourselves in their lives. Sensitively, gently, respectfully, but purposefully. Verse 22, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't ask them to do anything. doesn't ask us to do anything without giving us the power to do it. We have the same God-infused power, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. You are a walking miracle of God's grace. Not the walking dead. Lots of churches might look like that, like they're still waiting for the resurrection to happen. No, Christ is at work in you right now, giving you everything you need to be sent. And while we tell of the love of Christ, we must also show the love of Christ by loving the unlovely, by caring for the poor, we have to live out God's kingdom because our doing gives credibility to our speaking. And you need both. There are times when we will have to have only a silent witness. There are times when we can only show that Jesus' message is true. And we have to be honest about the sad failure of many Christians throughout history to really live the gospel. Sometimes people have done the exact opposite in Christ's name and that's hurt the cause of Christ. You know, as Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Our words and our actions, they have to align with Christ, but actions alone won't communicate the depth of God's love. Actions alone won't communicate the good news of what Christ has done. Our words matter, our verbal witness matters. The love of Christ needs to spread out. It needs to go outward from your heart in concentric circles of influence, the way Jesus is changing your heart begins then to affect the relationships you have with those closest to you, your family and friends and co-workers, neighbors, classmates. But it goes out even further, his good news, it ripples outward to how we live in the wider world, our choices, our money, our work. It spreads even further than that as we have opportunity to even touch lives in far off places like the Nkota Kota region of Malawi, Africa, where our faithful mission partners will be able to extend their reach because of your generosity in our Easter offering. We are all sent by God. We are on a mission together as a church community. 
And it's unfortunate that the, the word missionary has the aura of describing someone who is sent overseas by the church to some faraway place. You know, you go there and make disciples. Or that this missio stuff, is that's just the purview of the missions committee. It's somebody else's job. That obscures the fundamental calling by Jesus to every believer to be on mission, to be on target for Jesus. Being sent by God right where you are, even as you share in the global mission of God. Friends, our greatest mission field is right here in our backyard. You don't have to go anywhere else to be on mission for Christ. You can do that right here. How does that happen? How do you get on mission for Christ? Well, it's simple. It only takes one thing. You have to be open to let God use you. You have to be open, willing to let God use you. That's actually all it takes is openness. You don't have to know the Bible backwards and forwards. You don't have to be a perfect Christian. You just have to be open to let God use you. And when you feel the nudge from God, you go for it. You take that next step. And then it's kind of up to God to do the rest. You just take that next step. Let me give you an example about... Fifteen years ago, there was a woman from our church who was serving as a school crossing guard, you know, with the orange vest and the handheld stop sign, helping kids cross busy streets to get to school. And one day, a distinguished-looking, white-haired man started crossing her street, started doing it each morning. He, he walked with a limp, and he had a cane, and he just seemed sad. So she just felt the nudge from God to try and brighten his day, first with just a pleasant greeting and Eventually, they'd talk a little bit each time he crossed her street, but she still felt that he just seemed so sad. Again, she felt God's nudge just to do something. So she got up her courage, and one day she offered him a very simple Christian devotional book. I mean, she was way out of her comfort zone, but she did it. She had no idea how he would react. And so he took the book, and he thanked her. Now, she had no idea that this man was a university professor. In fact, he had been the chair of a department at one of the major elite universities in our area. He's a brilliant scholar with a worldwide reputation in his field, the author of some 30 books and a committed atheist. But because of a number of personal issues, he had been contemplating suicide, had the gun out in his lap, and it misfired. He shot himself in the leg and shattered the bone in his thigh, and hence the limp. The walking was part of his therapy to try and regain use of his leg. And when he got home, he devoured that little book like a starving man who'd found a loaf of bread. And he gave his life to Christ just like that. God's little acorn grew up in a hurry in his heart and cracked open his cold, hard heart. And the next day he told her, and she was overjoyed. She put him in touch with me. He and I met many times uh, weekly for months. And I started him out with uh, reading C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity. Well, he had such an enormous intellect that he read all of C.S. Lewis's book and books in one week. So I had to really up my game. But the thing that troubled him most was the way that he had misled so many college students during his academic career. Because now his whole worldview had changed. He regretted writing every one of his many books, wished he could go back and rewrite them all. And now he saw that Christ was sending him, sending him back to the university campus to be on mission for Christ in the classroom and in his research and in his writing. He took a job at Oxford University in England. And can you imagine the number of college students and faculty that he has had the opportunity to influence for Christ since then? 
all because of the willingness of a suburban mom, a crossing guard, who was on mission for Christ, who felt God's nudge, and then just took the next step, who was a sent one, an apostle for Christ in an orange reflective vest. Our Easter offering has been using the tagline from Matthew chapter 4, 19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Which fits because this Nkota Kota region is primarily a, a fishing region right on the banks of Lake Malawi, which is huge. It's like the size of the state of Vermont. To drive home that point with our children to be on mission for Christ as fishers of men, we had the kids uh, make little paper fish like this one. And then to think of someone that they would like to share the love of Christ with and to write that person's name on this fish. This one says Airy. In your bulletin, you'll see a fish-shaped post-it note stuck to the insert. That's for you. There are pencils and baskets beneath your rows of chairs. And I'd like you to follow the children's lead. Take that post-it note and write down the first name of someone with whom you would like to share the love of Christ. Someone where maybe you feel the nudge from God to take the next step. Where you can be on mission for him. To write that name down right now. Take it home and put it on your refrigerator or somewhere where it will remind you to pray for that person. And then to be open and mindful of opportunities God will give you to be on mission for him. It's our turn to pick up the torch and run with it. It's time for us to get off the bench and get into the game. That was the challenge of Easter. That was Jesus' first resurrection message to the disciples that very first Easter Sunday. That's what changed them from disciples to apostles, to people on mission for Christ. This Easter, let's really hear Jesus' words to us. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Let's pray. Lord, may we be the ones willing and open and ready to take that next step with you, ready to pick up the torch of the gospel that has been handed down from one generation to the next, and now it's our generation, and it's our turn, Lord, and nobody will do it unless we do it. And so, Lord, help us not to be complacent or to use a lot of excuses to say why we can't be involved in, the, in your mission, but to recognize that you will call us and you will equip us and you will send us out, and you will help us enjoy the process, Lord. We pray, Lord, that many, many people would come and know the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, that they might know peace with God, peace within themselves, and that they might also share that peace with others. We thank you now, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.